We're now going to read Romans 5 verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, my name's Paul Harrington. Great to be with you here, actually, for the weekend. I'll be here Friday, and uh, that's today, and then again on Sunday, as we look at both the death and the resurrection of Jesus together. Many of you I know, uh, but if I, I haven't had the chance to catch up with you, I'd love to catch you after uh, either today or, or Sunday, if you're back on Sunday. We're going to focus on that passage we just heard read. It's in, uh, so if you picked up a booklet on your way in, it's printed out there, or if you've got a Bible, feel free to follow on. We're going to pretty well stick with that that part of the Bible and the reflections on Jesus and his death. And as we do that, let me uh, just lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you're a God who loves us. We hear that from this passage. And we pray that you'll help us to understand how uh, the death of Jesus fits with that narrative. Um, so we'll understand the, the content of love when we see something so gruesome happening. Uh, Father, we pray we'll understand it, but also you'll connect it into our minds and hearts so we might have clarity uh, as we come away today, not just clarity in terms of our brains, but clarity in terms of the purpose for, for living. So Father, uh, be with us now as we consider your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you will have picked up the, the theme for the whole weekend is extraordinary. Uh, extraordinary resurrection on Sunday. Now, when you come to think about resurrections from the dead, fair enough, extraordinary, okay? Uh, but today we come to extraordinary death. And the question you need to ask is, well, is death ever extraordinary? I mean, that is not normally a word I associate uh, with death. I think of other words like grief. I mean, that's a word I associate with death. I think of the way death breaks relationships and brings heartache, grief. Or when I think about death, I think of words like normal or ordinary rather than extraordinary. Because after all, death is the ultimate statistic. And although we try and postpone it in different ways by eating well, exercising well. My daughter takes me to the gym two or three times a week. It hasn't had much impact, you can tell, but you know, she still does it because she figures it's better if I live for longer, right? And uh, lifestyle can sometimes affect you know, the length of time you live, but it doesn't matter 
As you age, you just sag, bag, and bald, irrespective of what you do to your body. We're all heading in that direction. That's the, the ultimate thing. We know we will all die. And even when you come to Jesus' death, if you read through one of the biographies of Jesus or multiples, you understand that actually his death is not very surprising. Um, sure, he died young, probably in his early 30s, and so there's a surprising twist to that. But when you read about what he did, uh, it feels like it's almost inevitable that he was going to die young. After all, uh, it fits with our experience with what happens when a charismatic and powerful young leader challenges you know, the authorities, those who are in power. And that's exactly what happens with Jesus. He upset too many people who had too much authority and so as you read through the gospel, you feel like there's always going to be that point where he becomes a target. Uh, we've seen it in recent 20th century history. You think of people like John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King. They were guys who rose to prominence and they were dealt with. Jesus challenged the establishment. And actually, he himself predicted on lots of occasions that he was going to die. He predicted the where of his death and actually he effectively predicted the when. So what is extraordinary about Jesus' death? Well, I guess one thing that's extraordinary is the fact that 2,000 years later, there are millions of people around the world who stop and remember it. I mean, that's uh, quite amazing. But I think one of the really odd things about today is that we call it Good Friday. You know, what is good about death? Uh, you almost think Christians are a little bit macabre, you know, a bit twisted, uh, calling someone's death a good thing. Uh, my father's sister, my auntie, she died on Good Friday when she was 33 years old. Now, from that point in time on, let me say, Good Friday was never a good day for our family. It was always a very sad day because it always chimed that bell of someone who was close to the family. So here we have the death of Jesus. Uh, what words would you use? Sobering, shocking, unjust, cruel. Uh, probably not good, actually. Probably not good as you face up to it. But today, as we look at Romans chapter 5, not only is it Good Friday, but we're told here that we're meant to boast about Jesus' death. You would have heard that word come up several times as the passage was read. Boasting, celebrating it, and it just seems a little bit twisted. So how does that work? What I want to do is take a slightly closer look at this passage or a few parts of it and just unpack why Jesus' death is so extraordinary. Firstly, it makes it really clear that Jesus' death is motivated by love. Uh, Victor Hugo, fairly uh, famous poet and novelist, probably most famous for uh, Les Mis. Uh, he was the, the author, in, in essence, of that play. Uh, he said this, The supreme happiness in life comes with the conviction that we are loved. Right? The conviction that we are loved. And the first half of Romans chapter 5 that we're looking at today, it underlines how much God loves us. 
Uh, in verse 8, as you go through that passage, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Anzac Day falls in such close proximity uh, with Easter, often parallels are drawn between Good Friday and Anzac Day and what it represents. But can I say, uh, they are totally different genres of love. Uh, they are really of a totally different order. And you work that out if you pick up the logic as you go through this passage. Verse 7. Very rarely will one die for a righteous person, though for a good person one might possibly dare to die. Uh, Anzacs died for country, uh, for family, for a way of life. And let me say it's incredibly commendable and appropriate that we stop and remember. Uh, when I think about who I would die for, you know, I think, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably die for my family. Um, would I die for you? Maybe, you know, maybe in a good moment I might, you know. Uh, would I die for people I, I don't know or people who are enemies? Well, no way. I can't imagine dying for someone that, that I had a broken relationship with or who treated me incredibly badly. Anzacs did not go to war to die for the people that they went to fight. They didn't, they didn't go to war to die for the Turks who killed them. That, that's not the way it works. But understand here that that's the picture that is painted for us. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Or verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The picture is of Jesus dying on a cross for those who were his enemies. Uh, we, heard, we, saw, we heard and saw on the screen uh, cameos of people around the cross and might draw our attention to it. Father, forgive them. Who's he forgiving? Well, he's, he's forgiving his executioners. As he's forgiving his enemies... And that's captured so closely here. The argument of Romans chapters 1 through 4, uh, the preliminary to chapter 5, is of a picture of humanity as being all people who have turned their backs on God, people who are categorised as sinners, who said to God, nah, you're the owner of the world, but we're going to do things our way and under our own steam and according to our own direction, uh, rejecting uh, God in terms of his, his right ownership of the world and us. And the picture painted in Romans 1 through 4 is that there is nothing that we can do to sort out that broken relationship. We're, we're effectively enemies of God, but powerless to solve the problem. And God himself is the one who steps in to do something about it. You pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 5. It, it says there, we are powerless. Enemies against God who can't change that situation. It's interesting, isn't it? We, human nature is that we like to always think there is something lovable about us, you know, and uh, something that really uh, commends us and causes people to love us. But the picture here in Romans 5 is that God has, has love for enemies who don't deserve that love for any reason at 
fall. We destroy the relationship. And God is the one who takes the initiative to reach out to love his enemies. In verse 2 of that chapter 5, it says, this is the grace in which we stand. You know Have it clear in your minds. When it talks about grace, it is talking about something you can't earn or deserve. So what we're being told is that Jesus' death is something we stand in as a gift from God because of his love for us that is totally undeserved. Now, that's extraordinary love. There's no question about that. But also what we pick up in this chapter is that this is a death that actually achieves something. And that's the question I want to ask now. How does this death of Jesus on a cross, how does it prove the love of God? Or what's the content of this love? Because on the face of it, the fact that someone dies for you doesn't really necessarily do anything. <laughs> like uh, uh, Sue and I are coming up for our 40th wedding anniversary next February, right? Uh, and say I wanted to show her how much I loved her, and I said, I'm going to take you out tonight. And I take her to the Westpac building in town, which is the tallest building in the city, 138 metres, I looked it up on Google, right? And I take her to the top of this building, we look at the panoramic views, right? And then I say, Sue, I just want to show you how much, how much I love you, right? And so I go over to the barrier, I climb up on the wall, and I throw myself off, right, 140 metres up, yelling out, right okay now do you think sue and the rest of my family on the anniversary of my death would always drink a toast me and say such a loving man you know what a loving man you know no they wouldn't see it's it's, it's a pointless death isn't it see death of itself doesn't demonstrate love uh, unless it has a content to it and that's the point here jesus death actually achieves something Verse 9, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood. The justification idea is being put into right relationship with God, made right with God by what God does. And what we're told is that Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood, is the basis for us to be put right. Because the enemies of God are made right with him because Jesus pays the penalty for our failure to treat God properly, our sin. We deserve death, but Jesus takes it for us. There's a film that came out a few years ago now called The Last Emperor. What it did was it portrayed the life of the child who was the last emperor of China. And it picked up on the extraordinary luxury in which this child lived And the fact that he had a thousand servants to do his bidding at any point in time in his life. Now, at one point in the film, his brother asks him, what happens when you do the wrong thing? What happens when you do the wrong thing? And the the last emperor, this child emperor, he says, when that happens, someone else is punished. And he demonstrates it in the film by taking this priceless vase and smashing it on the ground. At which point, one of his servants is taken to one side and beaten up and uh, illustrating the very point that he makes, uh, that he's saying at that stage. 
But friends, when it comes to Jesus, understand he reverses that pattern. Because in our case, the servants are the ones who sin and the king is the one who is punished in our place and takes the punishment that we deserve. This is free grace from God because the giver bears the cost himself. And therefore now, we're told in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Enemies made into forgiven friends. And that happens when you trust in Jesus' death for you. And for the future, well, verse 3, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Or in verse 5, knowing this hope won't put us to shame or disappoint us. That is that in the future, if we have trusted Jesus now because of what he did for us on the cross then, then we will actually be face to face with God and perceive him in all his glory and have restored relationship. We will understand his grace, his mercy, his love and the redemption that is ours. Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him in the future? It's a much more argument. Um, it would be like if uh, I said to Mike Sams, I want to do something really special for you, Mike. I've decided to buy you a new car for your birthday, okay? And not only that, I'll fill it up with petrol, right? Okay, it's a hypothetical brother, but you know, let's say I did that, right? If I then delivered the car with the keys, right, the $50,000, $60,000 vehicle, I reckon Mike could be pretty confident I'd come through on the second part of my promise, the $80 tank of petrol that goes with the car. So if you do the big thing, then you assume that the little thing will get taken care of. The, the much more argument here in verse 9 is like that. We've been justified by his blood. A big thing has been done. Jesus' death for sin sorts out our relationship with God. Therefore, how much more confident can we be that the future is secure and that we are saved for that because of what God has done for us in his son? If we're forgiven enemies, then we're confident actually for all eternity because of Jesus' death. Friends, this, this is an extraordinary death. It is unique in its own way and we're told we ought to boast in it. It's an interesting way to speak of Jesus' death, isn't it? Verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've received reconciliation. I reckon everyone in this room from their earliest days as a child, can remember being told not to boast? You know, you, you, that's sort of, you know, trained into you. you t every parent knows you teach your kids not to boast and every child knows that message even if they don't know how to put it into practice all that well. Now, we know we're not to be full of our own success or our own importance. But here we're being told you must boast. Compulsory, actually, to boast but not in yourself. See, what you're boasting in is what 
God has done for us, the way God has reconciled us to himself, people who are helpless, people who are powerless, and God does it through Jesus' death for us. So here's the question I want to finish with. Uh, this Easter, uh, are you boasting? Right? Uh, you're meant to go out of here today thinking, I'm a boaster. Right? <laughs> you're meant to brag in the right sort of sense. That is, rely upon or draw attention to. That is, are you boasting in the love that God has poured out for you, poured into your heart? Are you boasting in the fact that God has forgiven you, that has loved you, he has given you peace with himself? Are you boasting because you have certainty about the future, not because of anything you bring to the table, because you don't, you bring nothing, but because of what God has done for you? Can I say, if you're not boasting in those truths, uh, can I encourage you to think again about it? Um, grab, we've probably got biographies, I imagine, over on the table. You could grab one of those, biography of Jesus, and have a look. Have a, a reread of the sort of stuff we were reflecting on earlier about Jesus' death and what he's done. Uh, think through the implications of his death. How wonderful it is. Uh, talk with someone like Mike who's been at the front or someone you know here. Just, just work it through. If your boast is not in Jesus' death, then you really do need to sort that out. But friends, if your boast is in Jesus' death, then can I say this is a good Friday and this is an extraordinary day because we come to the very heart of how it is we have restored relationship with God because of what God has done for us in his son. And that is a huge thing. And therefore, even though it's, it, it's a sombre thing, like we saw on the screen to reflect on the death of Jesus, the outcome must be one of celebrating. Uh, that is, if you understand it, uh, you're incredibly thankful in your heart that God in his kindness has done what was necessary and loved you uh, so that you can stand firm in that both now and for all eternity. Right? It's a great truth. It's a wonderful death. Let me pray first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, this death of the Lord Jesus was planned from the very foundation of the world. Uh, we thank you that Jesus willingly came into our world. He willingly suffered and died on a cross. Uh, that it wasn't pointless. It demonstrated your love and a love that was put into practice. That is, it was the means by which we can have relationship with you and be forgiven and have peace with you. And Father, we ask that you'll help us to appreciate that and to stand in that truth. Um, Father, help us not to deal with it from a distance or as a theory, uh, but to actually make it the very ground of our being, the knowledge that the key thing in this world is to know relationship with you through your son. Uh, Father, help us to dwell on it, uh, to take it into our hearts and minds and for it to dominate our perspective on who we are and our purpose for living both now and for all eternity. And Father, we pray this in the name of your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Amen. Amen.